This is an important book. It's a very timely letter to the American church. He's a best-selling author. He has a syndicated radio and television show. He, he um, lives in New York with his wife and his daughter. Um, many best-selling books. Bonhoeffer, William Wilberforce. His books have been translated into 25 languages. And so I'm going to turn the table on him. I'm going to do the interviewing. Normally he does a syndicated show where he does the interviewing. But it's our privilege to have him with us tonight. Would you give a warm welcome to Eric Metaxas? All these people. Wow. Praise God. Brought to you by Seven Weeks Coffee. This is pretty. Uh, thanks for coming. This is, this is really amazing. In New York, uh, we don't have stuff like this. Uh, actually, churches? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, uh, I shouldn't say that because uh, it's not quite true, but I'm. I'm impressed and blessed that people have come out tonight. It's, uh, yeah. I'm very happy. Well, because Thank they you. know it's an important topic. Now, before we talk about all of this, um, by the way, we're going to save like the last 15 minutes to do Q&A. So you'll be able to text in questions or maybe want to clarify something. Um, and so that number we'll put up on. Can we put that up now so that people can have it and be ready to text when either he or I say something that doesn't make sense. So it's 703-844-9969. And so you can use that number to text in any question and uh, we'll, we'll get to those a little bit later. First, I want to tell a funny story about you. I want you to tell a funny story. Okay. So back in May, Eric and I were at Calvary Chapel San Jose we, it was like a freedom weekend, and we were both speaking there. Mike McClure is a mutual friend of ours. He pastors Calvary in San Jose. And they have been levied like $2.8 million in fines by Governor Newsom because they kept their church open during COVID, and they've been fighting that battle in court. So, they, so Mike McClure has a really sharp, I don't remember her name, attorney who's been arguing the case. I don't know if you know the story I'm going to tell you. But anyway, she, she has a very cackling laugh. And, um, but, and so we're having dinner together. Do you remember this now? I, I, you will remember when I say this. Unfortunately, it's beginning to come back to we, me. We were having this dinner together, and she's giving this amazing testimony of how she was literally, literally healed from being blind as a child. And so we're just like in awe. And then Eric goes, after she says all this, and we're just like, Eric goes, well, is God going to ever heal, heal you from that terrible laugh that you have? <laughs> that's the I, kind of guy he is. That's not really fair. That's not fair. I, I said it in a much more loving way than Yeah, that. sure you did. And I remember distinctively. That it was a cackling very loving, laugh, I think, is the way you, is you said Is God going to heal you of that cackling laugh? You believe? You know, is your God big enough to heal you of that cackling laugh? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, but, that's true. Oh, no, the story yeah. was so amazing. When, when I hear something that astonishing, it really was mind-blowing that when she shared that story. I, I have to deal with it with humor. That's, yeah. I, I don't know. And, that's, and uh, Okay. But there's, but there's nothing funny in this book. No, there's not, not a it's syllable. It's very sobering. Yeah. So this is not Socrates in the city. This is Hamrick in the suburbs. But what, what I'm going to do with you is I want to go through this. I, it, it's a great read. It's a sobering read. It's actually, um, I, I, I say terrifying, not in a sense of like, you know, we should just all be phobic about everything. But well, it's terrifying if we don't do it. In other words, yeah. if, if, if it's kind of like if somebody says, well, you're standing now. 
a train is going to come at 80 miles an hour and kill you in a millisecond, all you have to do is move. If you don't move, it's terrifying, but you can move. And that's why, that's why prophets give warnings. That's why the Lord, you know, speaks to us because he doesn't want bad things to happen. And if we obey him, he blesses us. But if we don't obey him, we hurt ourselves effectively. And this is, it, I, I wrote the book as a, in, in a sense, uh, as a very grim warning. And I don't, it's not like I came up with this in the natural. I really believe this is the Lord. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't give it the title letter to the American church. That the silence of the church in Germany in the 1930s, which led to the nightmare of the Nazis and Hitler and unspeakable horrors, uh, my thesis is that the American church uh, is being precisely silent on all kinds of evils in exactly the same way with the exact same excuses. We can't be political, we can't whatever. And it is opening the door to hell on earth. And if the American church does not speak and act and do the things that I know by God's grace you all here get, uh, it's going to be very ugly. We're not any different than the Germans. And so it is, it, it is very sobering because I, I know that it's real. And mm-hmm. that's where we are now. You call it in your intro, unavoidable and grim, the parallels between the German church in the 1930s compared to the American church yeah. today. Yeah. And I appreciated that you, you even called out some people in the book, not in a not in a nasty not in a, way. Not in a mean way, but yeah. I, I, I did it because I thought to myself, I mean, honestly, I mean, even literally today, um, I read a review this morning, uh, the Gospel Coalition wrote a review of this book, right? And it's obvious that they just disagree or they don't like me or something, but I want to say respectfully, I understand the points they're making. I just think that they're getting it wrong. I, I'm not trying to be mean. I just think that this is very important and they're, they're getting it wrong. We are obliged to see what is happening and to act. A lot of times people think, well, I'll just pray. You know, if somebody's being murdered or raped in the other room and you say, I'm just going to pray, you're a sick person. Right. And the church needs to understand that. Right. Like as much as, you know, you can't pray enough, but there's a time when you got to wash the dishes and you got to do this and do that. You got to do things. And something has happened in the American church over time where we have somehow forgotten that God requires us to act. And, and, and in fact, I was going to title the book, Faith Without Works is Dead. Because I really believe a lot of evangelicals have this idea that I don't need to do anything. I just need to like focus on the Lord in my mind. And it's like, no, that's not biblical. Yeah. That's and you not have a biblical. whole chapter about faith and works and that tension. But you, you also, um, you talk about something I thought was really important about the, the idolization of evangelism. Yeah, there's talk, a title. I thought yeah. that'll be provocative, right? Yeah, the, talk the, about The that. idol of evangelism. Well, because any good thing, any great thing, the greatest thing can be turned into an idol that becomes an evil thing, that, that wars against God. The greatest thing, my family, my job, my, my country, whatever it is, every good thing, this is basic theology, right? Every good thing, there's a temptation to turn it into an idol. And for Christians, 
when I say Christians, I mean serious Christians, evangelicals who, who, who believe evangelism is important. You know it is. But I've seen people avoid saying anything that's true if it might, they, in their mind, drive somebody away from accepting Jesus. And I think to myself, I get that. We all get that. That's wisdom. But at some point you go too far. There are issues, especially pastors from the pulpit, if you say, well, I, I can't speak about a biblical view of sexuality because I'll lose some people. It is your job right. to lose some people sometimes. The question is, are you being led by the Holy Spirit? It's not that you don't care about people, but the point is that if you just want to tickle people's ears until they somehow magically, you know, uh, sign a statement of faith, uh, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, rose from the dead, boom, I'm in. Yeah. It's that simple. That, that's not the faith. People act like, well, that's, that's all that matters. And it has silenced a lot of churches and pastors and Christians and Christian leaders because they say, well, I don't want to be political. I don't want to be divisive. And so they have been silent in the face of evil. And, they, you know, that's the quote. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. And the reason I'm saying this, Pastor Gary, is because that is exactly what happened in Germany in the German church. It is exactly what happened. I'm just telling you that is exactly what happened. They just said, well, we, we just want to preach the gospel. We don't want to be political. And they didn't know where it was leading. In other words, we have to give them yeah. a little bit of grace, right? What they did was wrong and ended up opening the door to satanic evil. But many of them did not know. They didn't understand where it was leading. And Bonhoeffer tried to warn them. Others tried to warn them. We've they, got to speak against this. And they thought that he was just uh, being oh. over the top and that, they, that he was exaggerating no, the, no question. The, the hour. No question. But you, in your book, too, talk about this a little bit more, because in your book, you talk about how during World War II, during this time of Nazi Germany, there were about 18,000 churches in oh, Germany. Yeah. And about 3,000 of them yeah. sided with Hitler, yeah. even hung the swastika flag oh, in totally. the church. Pro probably more. Probably and, more. And did. then another 3,000 yeah. said no, and they became the confessing church. Yeah. So, so you have 3,000 and 3,000. So 6,000 from the 18 you have 12,000 left over that were in the silent. middle so that refused to take a position. That's the, that's the key, right? Yeah. In other words, there are 18,000. This is Protestant pastors in Germany. Right. Yeah. 3,000. This is by 1935. In other words, the persecution had already come. And, you know, the cancel culture of that day, that if you say the wrong thing, if you don't say Heil Hitler loud enough, if you dare to oppose us, we're going to come after you, Right. They, uh, they wouldn't send the FBI to your door because they didn't have that. They had the Gestapo. Forgive me. <laughs> but the point is, yeah. They get it. I'm ready, I'm ready to defund, defund the FBI. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. the point is, they were using the government to threaten people, to bully people, to bully the churches. So by 19, Hitler comes in in 1933. By 1935, 3,000 of the 18,000 pastors were standing strong. Mm -hmm. They said, we're not going to be intimidated. We're going to, we're, the God, the, 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 the Lord is the, the leader of the church, not Hitler and the Nazis and not the state. So they stood strong, 3,000. On the other end of the spectrum, by 1935, there were 3,000 Protestant pastors like, like openly committed to the Nazis and to Hitler, and who were obviously theologically sloppy and didn't have a clue that the Nazis 
are trying to take over the church. But what kills me is the 12,000 who were in the middle who basically said, we're going to sit this one out. Yeah. We're not going to say anything. We don't want to get in trouble. We, uh, oh, we know that the super pro-Nazi people, they're wrong, but we don't want to say anything about it. We don't want to, we don't want to side with these 3,000 maniacs over here who are standing up for the gospel because we could go to concentration camp. You could lose this. You could lose that, whatever. And I thought to myself, is that not a picture of where we are today? How many prominent names, some I mention in, in the book, but most I don't. Mm-hmm. How many prominent Christian leaders are silent on any host of issues? Because they say, we don't want to be political, you know. And I thought to myself, what that led to in Germany was unspeakable evil. And the key is, they didn't know where it was leading. We have to be honest. We have to give them grace. They didn't understand that their cowardice or their worldly wisdom, whatever led them to be silent, was leading to hell on earth. They didn't know. And Bonhoeffer tried to get them to see it, tried to get them to see it. Others did too. And they refused. And by the time many of them saw it, it was too late. That's the key. It was too late because the authoritarian regime of the state, the Nazi state, had crushed the church. And I see something like really preposterously similar happening in America today where we have every kind of authoritarian, whether it's, you know, big pharma, big tech, uh, our leftist Marxist government authorities, they are trying to silence the church, trying to tell the church, you can't, you can't speak on any issues, you can't, and, and I thought to myself, it's fascinating because we've been so blessed in America, we've never really had to pay a price for our faith. We just think people in other countries, you'll pay a price here, everything's great. And when things aren't so great, we have to now ask ourselves, will we speak? Or will we go down the path that the German church did? Because the German church, again, we have to understand, like sometimes we tend to think like, oh, it's a million years ago. It's not that long ago. Yeah. And they were sophisticated, bright, cultured people who just like any of us never dreamt this could happen. We know it happened because we live now. But at the time, they didn't know what happened. And the parallels that I see to the silence of the church today, to many prominent Christian leaders on any host of subjects, we can touch on them, is just mind-blowing to me. And, it's, and, and if the church does not speak and act and push back against the authoritarian uh, government and on, on every one of these issues... There's no question where we're going. I mean, what we've seen happen in two years, did anybody dream that right. in two years we could yeah. get here? Uh, you know, and, and it, it's only the beginning if the church doesn't, well, let doesn't me, speak. Let me quote you in the book, and not to call out names for the sake of calling them out, but to, to just you know, document the slippery slope that we've been on. You, you do mention about how the Manhattan Declaration, which Ch- Chuck Colson... I, sh- I should explain that briefly. I'll yeah, be very, very Explain okay. the Manhattan Declaration. Chuck Colson bit. saw all this coming. Yeah. And he... Um, I love Chuck Colson and really just uh, revered him. And he, with uh, Robbie George of Princeton and uh, Timothy George, not related, uh, in Beeson Divinity School, they, they, were the signatory, they, they were the signatories on this document called the Manhattan Declaration, kind of formed after the Barman Declaration, because they saw in like 
I can't remember, 2006, whatever it was. Actually, I wrote it down. 2009. You, you said it. Well, eventually, right? It, yeah. it, but they were trying to get pastors in American churches to sign the Manhattan Declaration because they saw that on issues of religious liberty, uh, on the issue of un- the unborn, on the issue of sexuality, the, the, the culture and the government was beginning to bully the church, that if you don't play ball on this, you're, you're going to be in trouble. So they said, we need to sign this Barman Declaration, this Manhattan Declaration today, and make a pact with all our, with all, all pastors need to make a pact that we will not bow to the state. We're going to preserve the historical Christian faith on issues of sexuality, on the issues of the unborn, whatever. We see this coming and we're going to sign this declaration. They had a heck of a time getting people to sign it. Yeah. And some of Chuck Colson's dear friends, who are people that I respect profoundly, yeah. on some strange theological reasoning said, well, I can't sign it. And so I mention yeah, a couple I'll, of I'll them. I'll mention them. John MacArthur, John Piper, Alistair Begg. I mean, yeah. I, I, I respect those guys, They're too. good men. They're good men. And they the, got the, it wrong. The Manhattan Declaration was only three main topics. I mean, it had a lot of words to it, but it was basically, like you said, about life, about the unborn, about marriage, and about religious liberty. It wasn't even, in 2009, like, seriously controversial topics. It wasn't like and they wouldn't sign, sign the MAGA it. document. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. No, we weren't there yet. <laughs> and they wouldn't sign it. Um, and, and then you even have um, Andy Stanley just wrote a book called Not In It to Win It. That, well, that's more upsetting. It's more upsetting because he's basically upsetting. saying we should check out. We uh, should basically, sit it out. Again, I want to say good people can get this wrong. Many good German pastors got this wrong. Many good American pastors are, are getting this wrong. And so I wrote the book trying to reach those who might be reached and to say, look, this is not about demonizing you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, in some sense, call you out because like, you've got to understand what's at stake. And when I sent this manuscript to the publisher, I got a book in the mail from Zondervan because I guess they consider me an influencer, so they send me free books and, uh, <laughs> now and again. And... <laughs> It was a book by Pastor Andy Stanley, and the title is Not In It to Win It. And it was basically making the exact opposite argument of the argument I make in this book, saying that we shouldn't be political, basically. Uh, And it's wrong on a number of issues, um, or I should say it's specifically wrong on a number of issues, but it's flat out wrong in the thesis. Because even the idea that, well, we shouldn't be political, you think, what? Where did that idea come yeah. from? It is total garbage. On the issue of slavery, you're going to say to somebody, don't be political. Right. In the 1840s and 50s, there were tons of pastors who took that stand. Right. And they said, we don't want to be political. There's a lot of people, there's difference of opinion. It is the role of the church of Jesus Christ to speak against evil and to speak the truth. That's right. And... So the, the, the issue of slavery is easy for us. Like, we just think, like, what a satanic abomination. And, and Americans said that that was okay. Like, we, you should be disgusted when you, when you understand it, right? But in that day, there were plenty of pastors saying, well, we don't want to be political. We don't want to. But the, the pastors who understood their role as pastors said, I, ha- I have to speak against this. God will judge me and should judge me right. if I'm silent on this issue. 
And so that concept that we shouldn't be political, it is complete nonsense. And we all, including me, have kind of imbibed this without really thinking. Like, oh yeah, we're supposed to be Christians, but we're not political. We're not political. And, and what does that mean? On some level, it makes some sense. But when you're dealing with killing the unborn, when you're dealing with slavery, when you're dealing with the Nazis who demonized the Jews, there's a time when you're forced to be political and does somebody only have to say like, oh, oh, you're being political and you'd be like, oh, sorry. And let the slaves be enslaved, let the unborn be killed, let my children's lives be destroyed by insane uh, uh, transgender activists who have infiltrated schools and and I'm supposed to say nothing because I'm a Christian. It's, It's insane. It's mm-hmm. preposterous, and we have to disabuse Christians of this idea. This is a wrong idea. The idea that we're not supposed to be political, I, I just think that it, it was a nice idea for a time. You know, when the Democratic Party was Tip O'Neill uh, or, or, or Jimmy Carter or whatever, you could have some understanding, like, hey, like there's two sides to the story. But when, when Marxists are effectively taking over the whole culture, Um, when madness uh, has entered, if you don't understand things have changed, if you don't understand I've got to speak up, um, you're guilty. And I really think a lot of uh, pastors, I mean, let's be honest, some of them just have a good thing going. They're like, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to lose some of my people or my tithe. We just got a new building. Whatever it is, the question is, can you obey the Lord and trust the Lord with the numbers of people that come to hear you yeah. or with your ministry? Where Are you going to trust the Lord or has it become kind of a corporate thing? And I am really horrified when I read the Andy Stanley book. I was so horrified by it. it, it it's hard for me to put it into words because I said he is theologically wrong. He's historically wrong, but he's going to influence a lot of people to be silent yeah. and to buy this. And then the worst thing I have to say this was I went to the Amazon page and I saw a big endorsement for the book from Jim Daly of Focus on the Family. Hmm. And I said to myself, if you want to know how bad things are, good guys like Jim Daly, he's a good guy. I might not agree with him on everything, but there's no doubt that he's a good man, a man of profound Christian faith. But he endorsed this book. And I thought that's where we are, that good guys have been persuaded that we're supposed to be silent, that that's the biblical thing, that I'm supposed to just quote unquote preach the gospel, just what, and it, it's theologically messy. That yeah. There's no such thing as, Jesus did not just preach the gospel. Yeah, well, and. Whatever, whatever that means to preach the gospel, that Jesus didn't do that. You know, you he know, said you, some You refer to things. Luther in, in the book too, and Luther said, if you preach the gospel in all aspects with the exception of the issues which deal specifically with your time, you are not preaching the gospel at That's all. That's in my book? No, it's not. It should I was going to say it should be in my book. It should have been in your book. I read it. I'm, I will do research for you if you ask me. <laughs> I read that recently because I wrote a book on Martin Luther, of course, and I think I read it in my own book and I was like, oh, I should have put that in <laughs> yeah, the book. Yeah, you should have. Because that's really... Well, you know what it reminds me of? It's like if you have kids and you tell them to do something, right? I told you to take out the trash. It's like, well, I washed the dishes. Well, like, that's nice, but you didn't do what I asked you to do. Yeah. So you're trying to blow smoke. You're trying to play games with me. And that's what some people do with God. They're they're kind of like, well, I, I did evangelism and prayer. Well, what if the Lord asked you to speak up for the Jews, German pastor? And you say, well, but we, we had great worship time and we had great sermons. People are coming to faith. But 
but the Lord asked you to speak up for the Jews and you didn't do that. And that's to me the issue is like we, we kind of act like I, I don't have to speak on those issues. And we have to be blunt. The Lord says we're our brother's keepers. So when you're silent on all these issues, um, people are suffering. I mean, when you're silent on critical race theory, let me just tell you, people of color are suffering because of the lies of critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're a white person, you say, well, I can't talk about that. Why can't you talk about that? If you care about people, you speak truth. Critical race theory is Marxism, mm-hmm. which is based on atheism. It should be rejected just on that. But the point is, like, we're so divided that we act like, well, I can't talk about that. I can't talk about that. And I think if you care about people, you're going to talk about all these things. You're going to educate people, say, that's, that's nonsense. Socialism will crush the poor. Mm-hmm. So you need to speak against socialism because it's going to harm the poor. Um, and if that even means, like you say, well, that candidate is for socialistic policies and big government, and that candidate is against them, why should I be ashamed as a Christian to say, vote for that guy? Yeah. Like, why should I be unable to say that? Because people's lives are affected. But we've all been kind of silenced. And, you know, it starts a little bit with Lyndon Johnson in 1954 yeah. created the, the Johnson Amendment that threatened churches. If you speak politically, I'll take away your tax exempt status. That's how it started. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of well, even before it. that, it's the separation of church and state, which Jefferson wrote in a letter in 1802 that people think is in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, and it's not. So pastors have become intimidated over the years if it's not the separation of church and state, it's the 1954 Johnson Amendment. Well, actually, but just to be clear, the separation of church and state, that, that's, that is correct because... It's misapplied. It was, it's misapplied. Exactly. It's applied. In other words, the whole idea of separation of church and state is to protect the church's from the state. Exactly. That's the idea. And people yeah. interpreted it, I mean, secularists, people who, you know, hate the church, interpreted it like the church needs to stay out of public life. And you think, no, that's not biblical. Yeah. That's not in the Constitution. That's a lie from the pit of hell, frankly, that's going to make a lot of people suffer. And so we've been, we've been drifting along, uh, and, and here we are. Here's another quote for your next book, okay? If, if, if pastors are silent in the pulpit, the people will be ignorant in the pews. Do you know who said that? No. You did. I can't. I actually, I was, doing a, I was doing a podcast with Sissy Graham Lynch like two weeks ago, and that just rolled off my tongue. So you can use it. That's you. In your next, in your next book. Well, I, but now think about this, because of course what but you it just is said true, is though, so right? true, right? Yeah. Pastors have a responsibility. In other words, if the people in the congregation don't know that there's some evil, you, you could at least look to the Christian leaders to point that out and to be clear. Yeah. Slavery is from the pit of hell. Racism is evil. Like that's biblical stuff. And Transgenderism, like, like violating God's order of what, his, what he designed, male and female. So there's no this. question about that, right? Yeah. So that's scriptural. And, but if you say nothing, a lot of people in a lot of churches, they kind of Intuit, or I should say, they, they, they make the inference that, okay, I guess we don't know what we think about that. I shouldn't say that that's wrong. I shouldn't say it's wrong if it's being taught in schools and confusing my children. I'll, I should keep my mouth shut, I guess. Yeah. And I'm saying, no, um, it's madness. We have to call it what it is. It's madness. This transgender stuff is absolute madness. Yeah. There are people, and, and again, 
we have to be compassionate. If somebody is, is, is confused yeah. in that way, it's not funny, it's, it's heartbreaking. But to tell them, to tell somebody who thinks he's Napoleon, uh, I guess, okay, I guess you're Napoleon. Are you blessing that person by going along with that craziness? And I, I just think so when pastors are silent on this host of issues, people are actually being harmed. Um, yeah. And I think it's gotten so bad, but I, I just wanna be clear that I really do think it's come to the level of there's such evil we know in, in our culture right now, no matter where you look. And if the church is silent, the Lord God will judge the church. Yeah, that's and We right. are the ones that are yeah. responsible for this. I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna read just a short excerpt from your book and then the questions are rolling in. So I'll, I'll let you answer. Uh, and address what I'm going to read, and then I'm going to take a bunch of questions for you. But you wrote this. First, Bonhoeffer in the church was the conscience of the state and must call it to account, that it must loudly object if the state was doing wrong. It could not and must not remain silent when injustices and wrongs were being promoted and enacted. Second, he said, Bonhoeffer, that the Christian church was obligated to help any victim of the state. For Bonhoeffer, that clearly included the Jews. But thirdly, and most dramatically, Bonhoeffer concluded, that if the state refused to change course and do the right thing, but rather continued in its sins, which in this case were principally focused on persecuting the Jews, it was the solemn obligation of Christians to take action. They were not merely to protest verbally and to help the victims, but were also to become actively political, to, to, quote, shove a stick in the spokes of the wheel of the rumbling machine of the state. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty political, right? (laughs) <laughs> and when Bonhoeffer said that, it was, I guess it was 30, 1933, right at the beginning, tons of pastors were offended at the idea because they had it baked into their head that Romans 13, Romans 13, it's, it's covered. We can't be political. Romans 13, it's very clear. It's not very clear, folks. It is not very clear. When satanic things are being done and, and you just say Romans 13, you're, you are being very theologically sloppy, but tons of pastors in Germany, and this is in large part because of the influence of Luther, got that wrong. But tons of pastors in America are getting this wrong. They just go, Romans 13, we're not political. We don't, and, I, and I just think, look, I'm not telling you, you know, to have a picture of Donald Trump in your sanctuary. But, <laughs> but if you act as though... That would be fantastic. I, I can't... <laughs> If you can't call a spade a spade, say the truth, I want to ask you why. Why can't you? If there there are some people that are advocating Marxist policies, anti-American policies, policies that are going to destroy your children, that are going to destroy the poor, and you're going going to say, well, but I I can't talk about that. Why can't you talk about that? It's madness. How bad do things have to get? They've gotten pretty bad, mm-hmm. but they'll get worse if the church is silent. I want to I be clear on this, too. Bonhoeffer said the church is the conscience of the state. He said it has a moral obligation to speak the truth against the state, against the authoritarian state, which, of course, we're seeing in America now. But Bonhoeffer and those 3,000 pastors that were being heroic, they also knew that the church had the cultural power in Germany to oppose the Nazis. That if, the church, if more than 3,000 of them had banded together and said, we're gonna stand against these things, 
the, the Nazis couldn't have done what they did. So the Nazis knew if we could keep most of them silent, we can pull this off. We can mm -hmm. crush the church and do whatever we want with the Jews, with anybody. We will have total power. Bonhoeffer knew the church is not just called by God, but had the cultural power in Germany to do something. I know that that is also the case in the United States of America, that if the church in the United States of America would, would cease being silent and would cease being politically fussy and nervous uh, about talking about these kinds of things mm -hmm. and would boldly advocate for the truth at the risk of being political or whatever name somebody wants to throw at you, there is no question we could reverse the, monst the, the, the monstrosities that have emerged uh, at, at this point. But I really think that we've been so blessed that we've become spoiled and fat and lazy and just feel like I don't ever need to risk anything. I don't ever need to lose anything. I don't want anything to cost me anything. Well, agape love, which we're commanded to love our neighbors, means to give self-sacrificially. And Christians are supposed to live that way. So if, especially if you're a pastor, if you're not living self-sacrificially and saying, look, I could lose my church, but I'm gonna speak the truth. That's, I mean, first of all, it, it's kind of funny because we are supposed to believe the Lord is alive. He defeated death on the cross. You can't outgive God. So this idea that like, well, I want to hedge my bets. I don't want to, you're not really trusting God. You're going to trust God with your job, with your finances. With, I'm not talking about being a fool, but I'm talking about living your faith in an adventurous way that says, I'm actually going to trust God. I'm going to say things and do things. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get a vaccine because it seems dangerous to me. I could lose my job. And I'm going to say, well, okay, Lord, be in charge of my career. Show me what to do. How do I feed my family? I'm going to obey what I think is right. Even if you get it wrong, the Lord will honor you. And I, um, I, I, I guess I see this as an opportunity. The reason I wrote the book, and I do feel the Lord called me to write this book. I don't say that lightly. I, I know he called me to write this book. It's the shortest book I've ever written, but I feel like the That's idea why I is- I like it, by the way. What's that, you like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, Bonhoeffer was like, oh man. It's, yeah, I know, I know. Pack well, me a lunch. The, 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 the reason I wrote the book is because I firmly believe it is not the Lord's will that the sun set on America and liberty. Yeah. And, and I, I, I don't believe that's the Lord's will. And I believe that in a weird way, because so many of us know the Bonhoeffer story and know what happened in Germany in the 30s, that the Lord is saying that will happen unless you repent unless you do what, I'm, what they didn't do in Germany. But you have their example as a warning. So I'm hopeful that enough American Christians will wake up. Yeah, well, that, that actually dovetails because I'm getting a lot of questions about that. Um, this person says, many of us are awake, particularly this audience. How do we wake up others who are oblivious or who refuse to see what's going on. I've been shocked by the response or lack thereof from my fellow Americans the last two years. Yeah. We need to open their eyes, but how? Well, I mean, I, I guess I could say that's why I wrote the book, because yeah. I'm hoping to reach the people who could be reached. There's some people you'll never reach, and we have to understand that, right? There's some people you could give them every argument for the existence of God and the resurrection of Jesus, and they're going to go, yeah, whatever, and they're not interested. So, you know, we're not supposed to fool ourselves into thinking that, that the right argument can convince everybody, but we are called to reach those who can be reached. 
And I really believe there are a lot of good Christians and a lot of good Christian leaders who can be reached. So I, I wrote the book in a way to, uh, you know, generously and I hope graciously reason with them on this, on this issue. Um, but a lot th- of that's been my, that, 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 that's literally why I wrote the book, because I thought I have, to, I have to say this, because I do believe there's some that can be reached. Yeah, and, and just by writing the book, you're, you're addressing the very problem, which is silence in the face of evil. We can't be silent. So you're writing this. Well, we, when we were talking earlier, um, I mean, let's be real. Some of it is just, or even all of it, is just downright demonic. Some of the things we're talking about. Oh. And, and oh, therefore, yeah. there's such a delusion and yeah. deception you can't always just reason with someone if there's this demonic delusion. I mean, it well, really takes prayer, intercession. Thank you for saying that, because that is, of course, that is true, that we need to, uh, to, to fast and pray and, and, and understand God can do yeah. the impossible. He can reach people. Um, but I don't want people to think that uh, everyone can be reached. We understand that, that God in his mercy allows some people to be deluded. We don't understand that. But I really do believe that um, this is, at heart, a spiritual battle. Yeah. And I think, the, 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 in, a, in a funny way, is that Christians can over-spiritualize stuff. That's part of what I write about in the book, is that, you know, if, if, your answer, if, if all you can think about is prayer and evangelism, when there's re- there are real problems, like you need to get a shovel and like, you know, help that guy get his car free so he can drive to work and feed his family. Um, you can do that prayerfully, but you still got to get the shovel. You still got to do some work. And I kind of think that we have made our faith totally uh, intellectual or theological yeah. and that we must act. And the scripture says faith without works is dead. Yeah. So we know we're not saved by our faith. But if you claim to have faith, and you are not living it out, if you don't put your faith... Works. I think you... I think uh, what, what am I saying? Oh, I'm sorry, yes. We're not yes. saved by our works. If you, we're not, yeah. well, obviously, I'm sorry. Yeah. We're, not, we're not saved <laughs> by our works. But if you have no works, if you have faith, but you don't live out your faith in a way that is self-sacrificial, that is faith in... Bonhoeffer always had faith in action. Then that might be a sign that you don't have faith. And that should be scary to people, right? Yeah. To think like, you say, oh, I got faith, I'm saved, I'm saved. So I want to ask you, are you? Is your life showing that to others? If people look at your life and they go, that person's living out his faith, it's kind of obvious. Or do you just say, well, it's just up here. And Bonhoeffer talks about this in his book, Cost of Discipleship. He talks about cheap grace, the idea that people just act like, well, it's all just grace and faith and I don't need to do anything. And he's like, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not doing anything, that might be evidence you have no faith. Because scripture says faith without works is dead. You're going to live out your faith if you have real faith. And I think we've accepted this idea of faith as this intellectual proposition. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I, blah, blah, blah. If there's no evidence you believe that, if you're not living your life mm-hmm. in, a, in a different way, maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you're just saying you believe it, but but you don't actually believe it. Because the actions is what's, what proves what you, behavior proves belief, you know, and so, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to somewhat answer this myself, but jump in because this person says, are you recommending politics from the pulpit? See, the thing, the thing is that it sounds very political just because pastors need to talk about, and I do, talk about some of these issues 
that are facing our culture these days. So when, when, when I try to give a biblical perspective to the transgender confusion, or when I speak about life and, and the government is saying opposite, like yeah. it's okay to kill babies, yeah. or it's okay that we celebrate whatever gender you wanna be, then just addressing these from a biblical standpoint sounds political. Well, and no, but like notice the question, the question is already yeah. saying, oh, you're not saying politics in the pulpit, are you? And it's like, well, why would that be wrong? Let me just be clear. If you're a pastor in 1850 and you speak against slavery, people will tell you you're being political. Yeah. And maybe you say like, yeah, so what? I'm being political. Yeah. There are human beings That's suffering right. hell. It's called slavery. And if you want to call me political, I'm going to say that from the pulpit because I believe that's God's heart. I believe it's God's heart to save people out of transgender madness right. and to save kids in schools from going through these things. So even this idea that like, oh, politics from the pulpit, where does that term, what is political? I mean, if you're supposed to speak truth, it's how biblical. do you avoid politics? I mean, again, you know, maybe some say, well, I don't want to advocate for a certain candidate. I don't even have a problem with that. I don't think that's biblical to say like, oh, you can't advocate for a candidate. I mean, if Stalin is running for office, <laughs> but I mean, we've gotten to a point where people are like, oh, I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, this idea that like yeah. politics in the pulpit, it, I, I actually totally disagree with that idea. In other words, I think making an idol of politics is a sin. But making an idol of anything is a sin. Mm -hmm. Making an idol of my, loving my family is a sin. Making it, any good thing can be turned into an idol. But politics, God has given us a gift. We get to govern ourselves in America. People died so we can govern ourselves. And that means being involved politically. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the whole civil rights movement was a political movement that was birthed in the churches. That's true. And we don't, we don't complain about that, right? right? We know that was good. We know opposing slavery was good. We know speaking up for the Jews was good. But like suddenly on all the issues concerning us, we're like, well, we're going to be silent. That's not, it's just not biblical. It's just not biblical. So I, I appreciate, you know, we have people who are texting in questions and this one, um, I, I just want to mention and address it head on. God made, this person writes, God made all things, even transgender people don't judge. That's not true. Right, it's not. And so this person is believing a lie that has been perpetrated well, by the culture. It's even, a confu it's even a confusing statement. You say God made transgender people. God made all right. people. Right. And he allows every single one of us to be broken in a different way. Every one of us struggles with something. We are broken people. Yeah. And so if that's your brokenness, the point is you don't say, it's not my brokenness, it's who I am, it's how God made me. Uh, if, I'm if I'm sexually attracted to children, which many people are in the world, you don't say, that's awesome, that's how God made you. You say, mm -hmm. that's brokenness. Mm -hmm. And to follow that is sin. Mm -hmm. if, if, if someone is attracted to anyone other than their spouse, mm -hmm. you don't say, well, that's how God made you. You say, well, that's, that's your sin nature. That's your brokenness. That needs healing. Yeah. That needs addressing. We need to be clear, the Lord loves every human being, but it doesn't mean that everything we do or think 
uh, he, he wants to baptize as a good thing. But that's part of the lie of the culture because I'll celebrate your brokenness so that you think your brokenness is fine. Yeah. And then, and then if anybody says to you, no, your brokenness is not fine, but you can be made whole in Jesus, they're like, well, you well, must hate me. Well, not- notice how true. all this stuff, there's no common sense. If you have a friend, right. we have friends, okay? And a friend comes to you and he's like, I'm thinking of cheating on my wife. Yeah. What do you say to that guy? You say, excuse me, what, what, what? You know that's sinful, you know, and he'll say, well, you don't know my wife. It's been tough. It's been really, really tough. And, and this woman, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, okay, I get that. We're all struggling. We're broken, but I will never affirm you in that. Right. That is from the pit of hell that will destroy you. It'll destroy your family. That's called common sense. It's called love. Yeah. And we, we wouldn't say to that person like, well, that's cool, whatever, hey, whatever makes you happy. If you say that, you're not a friend. Right. And it's just called, it's called, it's common sense. We know that. Um, but I, I really think a lot of the ideology that's been floating through the culture, it's anti-common sense. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it, it's also fundamentally anti-God in a sense that it's a war with God's reality. Yeah. Like, like what's, what would make sense to, to any good pagan, you know, like there's right and wrong. Stealing is wrong. Cheating is, is wrong. Uh, these are basic things. And in a way, uh, academics and intellectuals and theologians and people can kind of twist it and make it sound complicated like, you know, well, we don't really know anymore. But one plus one equals two. Roosters can't lay eggs. Some things are, really? are, are kind of... I know, I know I'm a bigot for saying that. Uh, yeah, you are a rooster-phobic. But it's, uh, it, and, and that's what, what, where, where you feel like some of it is satanic because people, sure there's a deception is. going on yeah. and people are just, they're lost. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what's right or wrong. And I think if the church can't speak into that, who's going to speak into that? Mm-hmm. We're supposed to speak into that. Somebody asked, did any of the men you called out contact you? I didn't, you know, even that term call, I didn't call them out. I, I, I mentioned them as graciously as I could. I did not call them out. I'm not here to call people out. Uh, I, I don't particularly, I'm not particularly interested in dialoguing with them. It's pretty clear what I say in the book. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that um, I really, I, I say it respectfully that I, I think they're getting it wrong. I think it's very, very, very important. And, and I hope that they'll, they'll think about it. And I hope the people who follow them will think about it. So I told you that I didn't see you on camera, but somebody texted in. What was it like being on the third row last night? You were at Mar-a-Lago. Last night. Yeah, this was this was kind of crazy. Yeah. Oh, don't get political. No. Don't get, uh, you were sitting next to Mike Lindell. My pillow. Did you bring you pillows? Applaud. You would applaud. Um, this is this is um, a, it's a crazy thing when I when I knew that um, President Trump was going to make his announcement at Mar-a-Lago, a friend of mine said, like, oh, we should go. And I thought, I can, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not like palsy-walsy with anybody there. Like, I, I get to go or whatever. But I, I know some people, and I, I contacted some people. I said, would it be possible to, to go? Like, I'd love to be there. But all the people that I contacted were like, sorry, it's invitation only invitation. You know, these are like people who've given like a billion dollars, you know, to the, <laughs> to the campaign. They get to go or whatever it is. So 
on Saturday morning, I realized, well, I'm not going. And I really felt the Holy Spirit. You believe in the Holy Spirit in this church? Yeah. I, uh, that's a positive sign. There's hope for these people. Yeah. So I, I really did. This is one of these things. I don't say this lightly. Like it was definitely the Lord, um, like kind of whispering to contact someone that I hadn't thought of. And I was like, okay, Lord, like, I, I think that's you. I'm pretty sure. So I, I texted this person and within an hour I got an invitation and it was, it was so bizarre. And so that I thought, okay, the Lord wants me to go. So I went, I was there last night. Um, and Mike Lindell, who's a, a friend was there. They're applauding Mike Lindell. <laughs> yeah. These are good people. Cause um, they got the best night's rest of their just, life. Just That's please. Why. The only thing I ask you is please use the code Eric because we, <laughs> we need help. Um, is but, that a real code? Are you serious? But, yeah. <laughs> Are you serious? Really? That's my radio program. I thought we were friends. Man. <laughs> uh, on my radio program, no, he's a sponsor on my program. But so I'm serious. Use the code Eric. But that's not my point. My point was, my point was that he's such a dear soul, such a good person. Yeah. That I show up at this event. He's like, oh, we saved you a seat. And I was like, really? You know, because like I didn't have any whatever. And it was in the third row. In the right in the middle, and I, I just want to tell you, a lot of prominent people did not have a seat like that, <laughs> and I was really astonished and honored to, to be there. So Mike Lindell is a sweetheart of a guy, just a wonderful, wonderful guy. But um, I, I was there yesterday, and uh, I kind of couldn't believe that I was there, that I was that close, and uh, I felt, you know, again, if things weren't so crazy. You could say, well, who's to say how I should vote? But things have gotten super crazy. I think I said it before. Tip O'Neill is no longer the, 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 the Democratic Party. Yeah. We are now dealing with, with Marxist madness. We're dealing with people trying to cancel liberty. They're trying to cancel freedom and, and our abilities to speak. And I think, how can I not take sides on that? Patriots mm. died so that we could have that, okay? And, and, yeah. and I... And so I, I just don't understand how people can be so deluded as to pretend that, uh, that the choice hasn't become dramatically clearer. I mean, you, you, you didn't need, you know, in the past, there were many, for example, there were many pro-life Democrats. Sure, yeah. So that alone tells you something, but something has happened over time. Mm -hmm. And I, I simply think that this, this concept that we shouldn't be political, if Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce and innumerable others uh, were political because they believed they had to act on what God was saying, the question is not, are you being political? The question is, are you obeying God? That's the only question. And by the way, if yeah. you're not obeying God, now you've got something to worry about. Eric, our, our time has escaped us. I'm going to read uh, a little bit of your last chapter because it's a good challenge to the church. And then I'm going to pray and give you a chance to slip out because I know people want to talk to you and have you sign books. But I thought this was, this was just an excellent challenge for us. You, you wrote this. The question comes to us in the American church all these years later. Will we heed Bonhoeffer's cry for a full-throated faith that does not hope 
but that knows God has defeated death and that lives in a way that makes this plain to anyone who cares to see? Will we kick away the traces of our dead religiosity and fear-based pieties and speak truth whenever we have that opportunity, come what may? Will we wipe away the false boundaries between our faith and everything else, whether, quote, politics or culture, and act as though truth, capital T, is a person who knows no bounds, who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and who died that we who are the crowns of God's creation might at last live in true freedom with the authority that he gave us when he died and rose from the grave. Amen. Amen. Good challenge. Closing words? Yeah, I... Just in that, that last passage, this occurs to me because there's so many things that I didn't get to say tonight because obviously the time is short. But I want to tell you that part of the lie that a lot of us have bought is that we're supposed to keep our religion in a corner. Uh, and that's how some people misinterpret the idea of the separation of church and state. You're just supposed to stay in your little religious lane. Don't get out of your lane. Don't get political. Don't get, and I think, no, 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 no. Chuck Colson, my hero, in literally... Almost every speech, he would quote Abraham Kuyper, this Dutch Mm -hmm. statesman and theologian, who said, there is not one square inch in all of creation over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign, does not say, mine. So the world of politics, the world of education, the world of media, the world of everything, we're supposed to bring our faith into those places. We're not supposed to keep our faith in a corner like you get to do in China where you go to the official church, and when you come out of that church, you bow to the secular authority of the state. Religious liberty means we're supposed to take our faith out of the church, into all the world, into every part of life. We're supposed to apply it everywhere, and we will be blessing people when we do that. So this idea that we're supposed to just be, you know, that's when pastors say, I'm just going to preach the gospel. I'm just going to be theological. I can't actually talk about anything happening outside this building. Yeah. Where did you get that idea? That idea is fundamentally unbiblical. And the church needs to leave the building and take Jesus into every single sphere, including the political, and know that that will bless people. It won't harm people. Amen. 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 The The book is Letter to the American Church. Thanks so much for being with us, everybody. Eric Metaxas. Thanks for having me. Man, you guys are the best. Where do I go? I'll let you go this way. Thank you, Eric. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I thank you, Lord, for the body of believers here. We pray for the body of believers in churches across our country, that we would be strengthened in our walk with you so that we can be bold about our faith, so we can speak to the culture, so that we can address these things that are so vital in our day. Help to wake up the church in America, Lord. We pray for you to stir our hearts to light a fire under the church of Jesus Christ, that we would represent you well that we would glorify you in all things, that we would do it in the love of Jesus, but Lord, that we would be truthful in that process. And we thank you, bless Eric and the ministry really you've called him to in writing some of these books that help awaken us. And so we thank you for him and we thank you for this time we've had together tonight in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. God bless you all. We'll see you Sunday.